Hi everyone, Sam here. Thank you so much for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we dive in, if you want to enjoy premium access to the podcast and want to read or listen to the unmissable and informative journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Policy Dispatch. I'm your host Sam Morgan, here with you today to talk about Australia and how the land down under is handling the energy transition. Joining me today is Katan Joshi, an analytics and comms professional based in Norway who works to advance climate action. Before we crack on with the show, here's your Policy Dispatch quiz question. Today I'm asking you, how much of Australia's energy output is exported to world markets? Is it a quarter, a third, a half, or three quarters? Answer after the show. Uh, so I'm joined today by Katan Joshi, who I've wanted to get on the show for quite a while uh, to go over a topic that I've also wanted to learn about for quite a while, um, and that's Australia. Uh, Katan, thanks for joining the podcast today. Yeah, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Grand. Uh, so Australia... Um, emits about 1% of the world's greenhouse gases, ranks 14th in the list of emitters just behind Saudi Arabia. Um, per capita emissions might be going down, but cumulative greenhouse gases are, of course, going up, uh, same as everywhere. Um, maybe if we just start with the basics at the start, you know, what do Australia's climate policies currently look like? Are there overall emissions targets on the books? Is there a net zero deadline, clean power goals? What does the situation currently looks like. Yeah, it's it's very it's a very interesting blend uh, of good and bad. Uh, so probably we can start with uh, the good, or I guess you could call it the least bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the they have a target for twenty thirty. Uh, the the target in and of itself is a fascinating and long story, but I'll give you I'll give you a very short version of it. Uh, that back in. 2015 even like this was months before the signing of the paris climate agreement so so way way back in, in climate history, history. Uh, <laughs> and of course time progresses very differently for those of us working on climate mm-hmm. <laughs> um the the labor party which was in opposition at the time and 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 a coalition of the liberals conservatives and the national sort of rural conservatives were in power uh, came up with a target. They, they established a net zero by 2050 target mm-hmm. as a, as a vague sort of stated goal. And they also set a target of 45% reductions on 2005 levels, uh, by 2030. That was at the lower end of what was recommended by an independent scientific advisory body for the government. Uh, that target was considered to be pretty weak. Uh, when they set that 45% by 2030, they got a lot of criticism for it. In 2015, uh, <laughs> that was when they got criticized for having a, a two-week target. If you fast forward to uh, around this time last year, May last year, uh, there was a federal election and that opposition party was elected into the power for the first time since uh, 2013. Um, so it's a long time since they've been in power, nearly a decade. They were sort of uh, in opposition and the Conservatives were in power uh, in Australia for that whole time. And it sort of went through a cycle of a bunch of very bad prime ministers doing very bad climate policies. Uh, and 
the Labour, everyone kind of looked to the Labour opposition to be like, okay, you know, this is your moment. Like you, you, you sort of, you're into power. Like what's your target for 2030 going to be? And what they did was they actually plugged in their uh, existing policy ideas and they, and they and it came up with a 43% by, 23, uh, by 2030 uh, reduction in emissions, which is actually a weaker target than what they originally envisaged in the year 2015. Uh, so it, it, it's better than what the Conservatives had. They, they had a 26%, um, which, which like Australia will blast past just through business as usual. Like if you were to never create a single new climate policy in Australia, uh, emissions will fall um, more than 26% of 2005 levels just by default, right? Uh, so that's really, so basically the Labor Party uh, were writing off being better than a very, very, very bad uh, previous government. However, the target is, is not only just insufficient, but it's actually weaker than what they originally came up with uh, nearly seven years ago, eight years ago now. Uh, so it's it's not a good target. Uh, it's it's very weak. However, they did legislate it, which makes a bit of a difference in a few small ways. Like government agencies can consider it to be you know a sort of strong target. Uh, the other thing that's worth mentioning is it, it's binding. Yeah. So so that's that's a difference. You know, that's a point of difference from the previous government. Um, so they they basically uh, set that target. They submitted it to the UNFCCC. Um, however. They are very unlikely to update it ever before 2030, right? So they'll kind of just stick with that target, um, and there's a very low chance that they'll update it. Probably what they'll do is they'll they'll announce a 2035 target, um, probably using the same thinking of, of of drawing a straight line from current emissions to 2050 in a linear pathway, and then kind of just drawing the dot on 2035 and going, okay, well, that dot, that straight line, linear straight line is our is our 20, uh, 2035 target. So it'll probably be something like fifty-five percent by twenty thirty-five is my guess, is my guess because it rhymes fifty-five twenty thirty-five. Uh, so <laughs> uh, good marketing, um, and 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 so the other very interesting thing that happened. Uh, this is the only other real target that they have in terms of just a number um, is for the power grid in uh, across Australia. So there's there's a few different power grids, but for the main one, and then a few in the western states, uh, in the western state. The target is for uh, 82% of power to be from clean sort of non-emitting sources by the year 2030. Uh, and that was initially not really a target. Uh, it was actually a projection <laughs> that was um, in a modeling document that they put for- put forward before the election. Um, and it sort of just became a target through a, a bunch of people, probably me included, uh, treating it as if it were a target. Um, so it's kind of become this goal for the government, which is great. You know, um, that's a really, that's a good thing. Um, and it's, and it's quite an ambitious target. The, the current growth rate for renewables is, is about a third to half what it needs to be. And that's with the stuff that's currently getting built and added right now. If you look at a leading indicator, which is basically uh, early stage financial investment in renewable energy projects, that is slowing down a lot. Um, so actually, the, the first quarter of 2023 was the first quarter on record since before the start of renewable energy construction in Australia, where there was zero dollars of uh, financial investment in, in renewables. So a small part of that is that an old renewable energy incentive scheme called the Renewable Energy Target 
stopped growing, so essentially stopped incentivizing new renewables in the year 2020. So there's been a flow-on impact of that where there was a huge sort of flurry of, of activity in 2019 and 2020, and then of construction in 2021 and 2022. Um, so there is there is sort of a very somewhat natural downward downward turn, but it shouldn't be that bad. Like it shouldn't, it shouldn't fall to zero. <laughs> That's a very bad sign. Uh, so basically, uh, two things need to happen very urgently. Um, one is that that old renewable energy scheme, just reactivate it. It's already there. It's very, very popular. People bloody love it. You know, it works really, really well. Um, reactivate it and get more financial incentives there. Um, a big part of the problem, of course, is that the cost of capital for renewables has gone up. Thank you to fossil fuels for doing that, you know, causing a global energy crisis. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the, it's just more expensive to buy the bits that you need for a wind turbine or a solar panel or a transmission line or batteries. Um, all of the energy inputs to it, making those things more expensive. Uh, so you need a new incentive scheme. Um, there's already one. It's one of the world's best. Um, I My career exists thanks to this exact scheme because that was my first job was working in renewables. Uh, and the second thing that needs to happen, which is far less likely and uh, would be a really huge challenge for the for the Labor government, uh, is to admit that coal-fired power stations need to shut down far earlier than their current lifespan, the current plans, right? So when you put it all into a spreadsheet and you go, okay, well, this one's closing on this date, this one's closing on that date, uh, the, the amount of emissions that add up over time for those plants is just far, far too high. What you actually need to do is, is set those closure dates earlier. You, there's already a new government body. This is one of the this is one of the party's best policies, in my view. They've developed this organization called the Net Zero Authority, which is basically like a just transition authority with a different name, uh, dedicated entirely to uh, supporting workers and economies um, and sort of communities and regions where uh, large fossil fuel industries are shutting down. So coal plants and coal mines, gas plants, etc. So that's really good. Um, that's that infrastructure is now there, and they just need to kind of get it working, get it up and running. Um, but but they're too scared to kind of just announce and say we're actually going to manage the transition. We admit that it's happening. We admit that it needs to be like levers need to be turned to make it go a little bit faster. But we're going to be here to catch everyone that gets caught up in that, and we're going to be there to protect them. Um, that's not something that they're currently prepared to do. They need to undergo this massive shift. So. So that 82% target, when it was initially sort of modeled and, and like announced, uh, what the government did was they completely avoided the question of to hit that target, do you need to call, close down coal st power stations earlier than what they're currently planned to do? And of course, you have to, right? Mathematically, it's impossible <laughs> unless, unless like energy demand were to rise like two or three times in Australia maybe some Bitcoin mining or something <laughs> like you just, you'd have to shut down, you'd have to shut down those coal plants. Right. Uh, so uh, they, they just skirt around it. They don't want to talk about it. They want to have the renewable ambition. They like renewables, but they can't bring themselves to dislike the presence of fossil fuels. Uh, and that's the fundamental like underlying core story for their thinking on climate is they, they are pro renewables, but they're not anti fossil fuels. The other thing that's worth mentioning, of course, is Australia's export industries, which are which for fossil fuels are primarily coal and gas. 
Uh, and coal has been, you know, slightly somewhat decreasing over the past two years and gas has kind of just been staying level. So uh, growth has reversed for coal exports and growth has stopped for gas, which I find to be really interesting, right? Like that's not something that you sort of hear very much or discuss very much. What it says to me is that the government now should be preparing in the same way that I just described for coal fire power. They should be implementing really strong policies that that guide and manage the phase down of um, fossil fuel extraction in Australia uh, instead of kind of just sitting back and letting it happen. <laughs> this is a very sort of uh, you you ask me what policy there is in Australia. This is a, this is a very sort of no policy area. They're they're very non interventionist, with the exception of a few subsidies and incentives for fossil fuel projects. So like a very large gas export terminal in, in the Northern Territory called Middle Arm has a $1.5 billion subsidy associated with it. And they're kind of like scrambling to kind of greenwash it a bit, call it like a hydrogen sustainability hub. But the vast majority of energy that is flowing through that facility is fossil energy, right? Like it's combustible fossil energy. So uh, yeah, it's really, you know, they, they sort of, uh, they don't really want to think about what it means to act on climate is to shut down fossil fuels. Um, and and it's and it, you can see it reflected in the pattern of their policy, right? Like they have no qualms having a strong renewable energy target, uh, but but and they have no qualms, you know, basically saying, um, look at these kind of like nice electric vehicles that we're incentivizing or things like that. But when it comes to saying we're going to set a date to end the burning of gas in people's homes, or we're going to set a date to end the combustion of, of petroleum in, in engines and cars and vehicles. Um, that's just not what you see in Australian policy. Yeah. So they've kind of got like 20 to 30% of, of the kind of thinking that they need, but they struggle with the rest of it quite a lot. We've covered the policies that kind of exist then. And then mm. if we look at other countries that have you know, rather successful policies that drive climate action, I mean, in Europe, emissions trade in, there's carbon tax coming in, you know, soon. Um, why have those kind of policies not taken off? Has that just been pure political opposition? Or is it more like yeah. a US situation where they just can't get their act together to even contemplate this kind of thing that has been proven to work somewhere else? So it's worth mentioning one policy uh, that both exists and doesn't exist, <laughs> which I'll describe, which I'll explain. Uh, so basically, you've got uh, large industry, heavy industry in Australia split into two categories. Uh You've got emissions-intensive facilities that mine coal and gas and process it and ship it overseas. And you've also got uh, this really broad array of different manufacturing uh, industries, right? So you've got cement, uh, you've got aluminium, that's a very energy-intensive one. You've got airlines, uh, and then you've got a whole array of like kind of, you know, uh, factories and, uh, you know, large sort of... uh, you know, shipping companies and things like that and processing mm. facilities that aren't dealing with fossil fuels, basically. They may use them, but they but they are not uh, producing or primarily selling energy from the combustion of fossil fuels. Uh, so those, those are two categories for heavy industry, basically, in Australia. The, they all, so both categories, fall under the purview of this, of this policy called the safeguard mechanism. Mm-hmm. It was initially designed... To kind of just be this thing that floats magically above emissions. It's a baseline or a cap on emissions, but no one ever hits it because the baselines are always just way, way, way above what right. actual emissions are. Uh, so it was kind of there as like uh, it just you know the only time it would basically be activated 
is if an if an industry were to just grow absurdly and rapidly. Um, uh-huh. But but even in the cases where emissions did grow, like the gas industry, what they basically just did was was they fought for their baseline to increase, and and they won, right? Like so, you can look at the history of baselines for a lot of these companies, and they're, and they're just going up as their emissions go up, right? Which is absurd. And so when the Labour Party were elected, they thought, okay, well, we can actually work with this, right? All we need to do is change the policy so the baselines actually just start dropping instead of just ridiculously rising as emissions rise. Right. Uh, and that can be our control or regulation on the, on both of those groupings, so mm-hmm. fossil fuel industries and just general industry in Australia as well. Uh, and so they plugged in, they did the math, they kind of plugged it into some spreadsheets and they're like, okay, well, it kind of needs to drop about 4.9% a year, the total emissions for all these all these things. However, in the process of designing this change, the industry, the, primarily the fossil fuel industry, but also a few of the larger emitters as well, fought for and won the right to pay uh, their compliance fee if they're above those caps mm-hmm. using carbon offset purchases. Right. Right. So it's not mm-hmm. a tax. It's not a carbon tax of any kind. It's not a carbon price. They're not paying a fee for which they get nothing back when they breach the regulation and their emissions are higher, they do get something back, which is a carbon offset. So if they breach their emissions for every year from now until 2030, they can slap those carbon offsets right down onto their, onto their corporate sustainability reporting and say, we reduced our emissions in line with the safeguard emission with mm-hmm. the safeguard mechanism because we purchased neutralizing emissions, neutralizing carbon offsets. For those <laughs> for those time periods, yeah. uh, so they're doing two things: they're breaching the regulation, they're not reducing their emissions, but they are also claiming to have done so because the compliance mechanism is basically mandatory greenwashing. So you 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 are forced to claim that you have taken actions that you haven't really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a separate issue which I'm not going to go into, which is basically it's all these carbon credits come from Australia's own domestic carbon credit market. Mm -hmm. And there is a very broad array of extremely serious issues with the credibility of those offsets. That's its own thing. I would just argue here, you can't neutralize carbon emissions, right? Um, It's just physically not something that you can do. You can remove carbon, you can store it permanently for the rest of eternity um, in a solid form underground, but that is simply not what's, not what's being done here. Yeah. And even if you were to do that, even that isn't really a full neutralization of having released carbon into the, uh, re- releasing a greenhouse gas into the atmosphere. It's in the world. <laughs> so, so this is what I mean by the policy is there and not there at the same time, mm. right? Because it's performing the same function that it, always, that it did for the previous conservative government, which is it's there to be seen as a regulation. Uh, but in terms of whether it's whether its presence will cause a reduction in the amount of GHGs added in, into the atmosphere, of course it won't, right? Like the, like mo- for most of these companies, it is a pittance to, bu- to purchase those carbon offsets. Like it's, it's a very tiny proportion. But for the fossil fuel companies in particular who have had two years of their highest profits ever in, the hist- in like the many centuries history that they've existed as companies mm-hmm. or the industry has existed as an industry, They've never made more money. And so to basically say, well, you're going to have to pay 0.2% of the profits that you made in 2022 to comply with our regulation for the next eight years. Uh, they're like, yeah, 
sure, <laughs> of course we'll do that. That's not a problem. <laughs> uh, we're happy to pay. We're happy to pay. You know, uh, for the offsets um, for the next <laughs> for the next eight years. Uh, and so, uh, me among many others were highly critical of this, uh, which is just the just the biggest loophole in the scheme. There was a big political debate um, and the Greens tried to sort of force some changes to improve the scheme. In my personal opinion, those changes weren't particularly material. They didn't really address the root cause. Mm. I mean, they tried as hard as they could, but, you know, it's just very hard. Um, they, they basically threatened to block the scheme. And, you know, as I described earlier, 10 years in the wilderness of a, go a government that was very actively hostile towards climate action has made everybody a bit jittery. Um, and they're sort of just like, well, look, just just pass it first, and mm. we'll worry about the details later. Um, but we'll fix it, fix it later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's it's not going to get fixed, right? Like this is sort of locked in now. You can't imagine the I mean, a situation where this instrument evolves into something more substantial than whether or not it's cap and trade, or you know, full emissions trading system, or something like that, where it can be, you know, you know, they can make little tweaks to it gradually and people, it's like boiling the frog, you know, people won't realize that it's become more substantial. Yeah, it could. There's a chance that it could because there's a, there's a little additional element in there that has a bit of, you know, potential for it, mm -hmm. which is it's it has its own internally tradable credit scheme, right? So not carbon offsets, but if you're above your baseline, you get, um, you have to pay for these credits and if you're below it then you then you get rewarded them mm -hmm. so you know you can sell if you're below your baseline you can you can then trade with somebody who um, is above and the idea is that it's more financially beneficial for you to be below it than it is for you to be above it mm -hmm. you lose money if you're above it you get money if you're below it mm -hmm. um sort of you know like a lot like a bunch of other cap and trade emissions trading whatever mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff we've seen elsewhere in the world mm -hmm. uh however Unfortunately, uh, that depends on the baselines being good. Uh, the baselines being uh, strong and you know designed in such a way that that is sort of striking that fine balance between not putting them out of business, not basically being like a, a burden so great that it makes them infuriated and wanting to scrap the scheme, but still incentivizing emissions reductions at the rate that they need to fall, um, either to hit their own targets or to actually align with, with proper real climate targets, which is what I would argue for. Uh, they're not doing that, basically. Baselines at the moment are uh, produced on intensity of emissions rather than absolute emissions. Uh, and, and so there are actually scenarios where a company can increase their absolute emissions uh, and get rewarded um, with, you know, being under their, under their baseline that they may have basically just fought for mm -hmm. as being too weak. Um, and so it, it, it's it's extremely complex. Uh, there are a lot of formulas and, and, and like caveats, and um, so it has potential, uh, but it, it's going to take a lot of even even the good bit has its own sort of uh, little recipe of loopholes mm -hmm. that that um, has been provided to you know don't don't be scared of our scheme, but so much so that it may not end up reducing emissions much at all, if if anything. And and then the other context here, of course, is that. Uh, there's a there's a very large number of coal and gas projects in the development pipeline in Australia, uh, the most in the world, comfortably by a comfortable margin, mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, th those development projects will have high domestic emissions. This is before you even include the emissions from burning the coal and gas that they produce. They are just very emissions intensive projects. Mm -hmm. Gas in particular is it has a very very high emissions intensity in the process of like digging it up. It has a lot of leakages. 
uh, processing it is very energy intensive. You burn a lot of gas that, that of course, you know, the single high, 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 the single largest customer for gas in Australia is gas. Uh, the processing of gas to, to, to mm-hmm. ship it overseas, that consumes the most gas in Australia <laughs> compared to like households, industry, everything, you know. Uh, so it's so wild, you know, what, what a sort of self-sustaining system. That's what a circular economy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so basically, there's a scheme, and there was a big fight about it, you know, and it's kind of it's actually going into effect uh, on the first of July. So at the time we're recording this in a couple of days, um, and uh, that mm-hmm. will then manifest. Probably, I'm I'm going to take a wild guess, but you know, in in after the first year. It will kind of just be most participants in that scheme, mm-hmm. having spent most of their first year just buying up offsets to cover their to cover their uh, requirements under the new safeguard mechanism. Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you and maybe your colleagues as well that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism is just a click away. Try a subscription for thirty days for just twenty nine euros. That gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to www foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe follow the link in the show notes now back to the show i I guess everything that we've been talking about so far has been um sort of federal level stuff right it's the federal government either implementing stuff or doing smoke and mirrors to uh get away with certain lax policies what is the situation like in australia when it comes to the states and territories do they have a lot of power or any power at all to set climate policy or you know energy policies that affect climate um i mean is there any comparison with like the us where states have you know pretty good hold over what they do with infrastructure or or clean energy standards or something like that is there a is there a dynamic there states are incredibly interesting uh so the there's a real so what happened what has happened over the past uh sort of year and a bit maybe two years is that the the every state except one has been successively transformed from a liberal so the conservative mm-hmm. party uh into labor so the federal gov- the, the party currently in government the center left party um and and so that it has both good and bad consequences mm-hmm. <laughs> for climate action at the state level uh, so the bad consequence is that uh, you have a lot of people who are heavily, heavily invested and physically just much closer to the fossil fuel industries that are under threat. So particularly coal plants and particularly coal and gas mining pro- facilities. So Western Australia, uh, the Northern Territory, uh, are, are the sort of uh, gas, uh, big gas extractors and exporters. Uh-huh. Uh, and of course, they've got a lot of royalties coming from those um, facilities, but also there's just a lot of revolving doors, you know, like, like people working for the industry, then in the Labour Party, and then Labour Party, and then in, then in, in, then in the industry. Uh, and so that plays a big part of it where they just become active supporters of new fossil fuel projects and their existing uh, coal and gas export facilities, mostly gas in those two mm-hmm. states. Queensland and New South Wales, very large populous states on the eastern side of Australia. These are the coal states. Uh, and they actually probably have somewhat something of a healthier relationship. Uh, as I mentioned, those two industries are already in something of a partial decline. 
Uh, and they seem, the government seems somewhat aware that those declines are likely to accelerate. Um, they sell, uh, Queensland sells a, lot, sells a lot more steel making coal. So they kind of feel a bit more confident about demand over the next 10 years. Whereas New South Wales sells a lot of thermal coal for burning in power stations. And they're just, they, they kind of have to be a lot more open and, and honest about what's going to happen. Uh-huh. <laughs> And so they're really planning ahead. Um, I think that's I think that's good. You know that it, New South Wales, I think, is the only state with a very clear, like there's a chart and it just has you know what they expect for for coal exports and a scenario of a rapid decline and a plan for the rapid decline. It's not something you really see very often at all for governments mm-hmm. uh, in in Australia. The really interesting state and my favorite because it's so full of interesting contradictions is Victoria. So this is on the Eastern seaboard as well. It's the second most popular state in Australia. There used to be a lot of gas extraction in in Victoria, but they put a moratorium, um, particularly on fracking. Mm -hmm. Um, They have the strongest, they have the strongest domestic emissions target of all the states. Uh, They have a really good renewable energy target that is just an actual renewable energy target rather than the accidental projection that Uh I mentioned for the the Federal Party before. Uh, And they also have a community energy target as well. So they have a mandatory, they have a proportion of that that will go towards um, community-owned power. Mm Uh, so Victoria is really just miles ahead. Uh, you know, a lot of the other states set their net zero targets and their 2030 targets ages ago, and they haven't updated them because they're freaking out a bit because it's it's actually getting close to 2030. You know, time is time is just moving on; it's ticking forward, uh, and it's you know just a few months until 2030 comes around, uh, and they're sort of freaking out a little bit because they don't they actually have to you know. They have to do two things. They have to improve their 2030 targets. They're very old. They're outdated. And then they have to enact mm-hmm. them. Um, so they have to enact them through through domestic policies at a state level. Uh, so Queensland, for instance, has a, I think it's 30% by 2030, which is just absurd. You know, like that's a very old, that's like a, that was set, um, I think, at least five years ago, if not more, in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really tricky for them because that like, they don't want to be seen to be shutting down the coal industry, but the the methane um, emissions and the energy consumption of coal mines in Queensland is just massive. Methane is actually somewhat even underestimated at the moment. Uh, so when those corrections come through, it'll be even even worse, even more of a dire situation for them. Uh, and they just don't quite know what to do about it. New South Wales is on a much clearer roadmap. Uh, the, the, the previous government actually had a, a very good um, renewable energy rollout a system where they where they really focused on communities and and finding communities that were that were wanting those renewables first and then centralizing a lot of that investment around those areas they call them renewable energy zones um not not perfect you know obviously like everything with renewable energy rollout it's going to be a lot of friction um but it's it's a lot better than it was of the sort of haphazard like a, a sort of corporate developer just goes out and finds finds where it's windy and then just goes well i'm building here so <laughs> um this is a lot more planned and a lot more uh, a lot more well thought out um so yeah it's good it's good my my um my my job i started out in 2010 in the wind farm industry and we were based in sydney new south wales and we had a bunch of develop, development projects in in new south wales and a bunch of them were just a total mess because the developer, we those these were projects that, that the company at the time had bought off other developers and the developer kind of just went in um, with a really blasé attitude and um, caused a lot of community friction and they were basically irreconcilable, right? Like it was just, they were gone forever. Uh, these, these people hated the project for, you know, they'll hate it as long as they live. 
and that's not a good, that's a really just a guaranteed way to stall renewable energy growth in any country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I live in, I live in Norway and it's had a very similar phenomenon. Um, and, you know, it just looks very unlikely that Norway will, will end up correcting it. I mean, I said at the top of the show that Australia is about 1% of global greenhouse gases, which both of us know is not a small number, despite the fact that it's 1%. Um, if we're talking about this, you know, international effort to get climate policies up to a level where they need to be so we can hit Paris Agreement targets and everything else, how do you, how do, is Australia going to be, uh, should we say, pressurized from the outside to do more if more isn't going to happen domestically by itself. Is there something that the US or Europe can do to incentivize Australia to do more or to force Australia to do more? I mean, I've been covering the uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism that Europe's going to put in place soon. And it covers things like steel, hydrogen, aluminium, so on, um, which is obviously something that Australia is exposed to. Is that kind of policy something that could actually work or is that kind of not even on the radar of, of Australia's government, for example. It'll it'll certainly it certainly causes a bit of anxiety among among Australia's exporters uh, if, if they're exporting you know uh, items yeah. that have a high embedded emissions content in them. Uh, however, probably there's a couple of couple of things that are a bit more interesting in terms of like uh, the scale, the magnitude of impact that they have on decision making here. Uh, so CBAM is, is, is pretty important, but uh, one thing that I often see uh, coming up and I feel it's going to become more of a thing is that current government is really desperate to host COP31 uh, in the year uh, 2025, I think it is, if I remember correctly, or maybe 26, I can't remember which one. Uh, and mm-hmm. so they really, you know, they see it as a, as a, as a, as a sort of vindication essentially of their, and, and a fantastic opportunity for, for, for sort of greenwashing and papering over a lot of the, a lot of the problems that they've currently got in terms of uh, it's just becoming clearer and clearer that their policies are sort of a step in the right direction, but still badly insufficient. Uh, and so uh, a, a friend of mine who works at the Australia Institute, which is a think tank here, she described it as, her name is Polly Hemming. She's a very good writer on um, carbon offsets. I recommend her work. Uh, and she described Australia going for COP31 as a sort of an Olympics moment because in the same sense that uh, countries with, uh, you know, bad human rights records or, uh, you know, they're sort of doing wrong in some other way, that they kind of feel like, oh, we should host an Olympics, you know, and kind of have this great opportunity to, to paper over all of the bad stuff and present this shiny image to the world. And, and she mm-hmm. sort of theorizes cop working in a really similar way. I, I love that metaphor. Uh, as sort of like sports washing, it's like the Olympics uh, of climate <laughs> because you can kind of paper over it. And, and of course, this year, you know, last year and this year, countries with with not great track records on climate are uh, hosting COP. Uh, and they they have both those countries have seen it as an opportunity to uh, present a, a false image of their of their actions. Uh, and Australia will, will likely do a similar thing if it's if it's doing this doing the same thing. Um, I think that. It, it may work better for Australia um, simply for like somewhat racist reasons in that like white countries tend to get uh, much less, much less criticism and flack about this. You know, it's sort of easier to, it's easier to uh, paint that picture for, uh, you know, the UAE being this kind of dirty oil country 
Um, whereas, you know, if exactly the same thing happened here in Norway, it would, it would be a very different situation indeed. Uh, and so, uh, that's, that kind of worries me, <laughs> but it's, but there's absolutely no doubt that the debate about who hosts COP and if Australia is to be successful, the whole process and lead up to it will actually also be conversely an opportunity to put pressure on Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, if critics of its policies uh, do a good job of, of highlighting where it's falling short uh, and COP31 is a while away, you know, there's a lot of um, emissions data that would come out between now and then that would show in material terms whether the policies are working or not. Uh, and where they've fallen short, um, then it could actually be a fantastic opportunity to, to put pressure on Australia at the same time. Mm. Uh, and then the other thing that's worth mentioning um, that, that often comes up here is the prospect of Australia switching its exports of uh, very large amounts of fossil energy over to large amounts of uh, some form of clean energy. So you get this theorized as like uh, building a power cable, uh, you know, from the Northern Territory to Singapore, there's a project called Sun Cable. Mm-hmm. So that has kind of formed into this vision of Australia as it's often described as a, as a clean energy superpower. The whole vision is basically Australia switches over from exporting fossil to clean. Uh, and, and, it, and it's honestly, uh, with hydrogen, for instance, the, the sheer volume of construction of clean energy. I, I mentioned earlier that Australia is falling short just for a domestic 82% target. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you could, if you paint a picture of what a volume of clean energy that would have to be constructed to uh, produce hydrogen at the levels to replace all the fossil fuel exports. Uh, it's quite absurd, right? Like it's, it's falling short by like 10 to 20 times as opposed to a sort of 1.5 to two times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's quite, it's, it's uh, hydrogen is less dense than um, coal and gas. Uh, it takes a lot more energy to produce it. It takes a lot more energy to transport it. Um, so you just need to like basically build you know, three or four extra power grids in equivalent size mm-hmm. um, just to export the same volumes. Um, and so what I hope my work raises as a question is is whether or not those exports need to be fully replaced or not. Uh, it's not a conversation that's being had in Australia right now. Uh, it, it's, a, it's something very relevant to a whole bunch of different countries. Uh, in the UK, I've seen the language of a superpower or a clean energy superpower sort of uh, mentioned it speaks to the anxiety of losing wealth and comfort and, and profit yeah. um, from the sale of fossil fuels because it's power, right? Like the, 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 there's a reason that the word is superpower because it's it's a place in the world of, of dominance and um, supply and energy supply and, you know, the prospect of that stopping and becoming something else is just not being imagined or discussed, um, and so you end up with these visions of clean energy taking the form of these huge, huge, huge systems. Uh, and they're not, I, I would argue, they're simply too big. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're, they sort of, they're going to run up against roadblocks uh, just through their sheer size. Um, there's material limitations, there's community limitations, there's cost limitations. You can get through all of these probably but why would you choose to? Like, what's the reason that you would kind of undergo that fight? Like, what? why are you fighting to supply the same number of exajoules of energy exports to the rest of the world as you did 10 years ago? It's a strange, uh, it's a strange requirement and mm-hmm. no one's really sort of thinking hard about why that needs to happen. And then the other problem on top of all of this, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, 
um, is that the government, the current government in Australia, uh, does not really see replacement as the key thing here. They're actually, they'd be happy with two outcomes, right? They'd be happy with fossil fuels only declining very, very slowly and basically still being an export industry in the year 2050. Before the before the election, the current Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, was asked, do you think that Australia will still be mining for coal in the year 2050? And he was like, yes, of course, Australia is going to be mining for coal in the year 2050. Like, don't, <laughs> don't be silly. Um, and so, it indicates the kind of thinking that he has about what's going to happen to fossil fuel exports, right? He kind of sees it as a very slight decline or possibly even a straight line, you know? Mm-hmm. Every single country that fo- exports fossil fuels has this image in their head that they will be the last one standing. And it can't be true for all of them. Uh, it can't be true for Norway and Australia and Qatar and, you know, Canada and the US. Like, like someone will, like, there will, there will be one, you know. Uh, and, and the idea is also that if you are the last one standing, you'll be in a good position. That will be a good and profitable thing for you to be doing. Um, so like the idea here in Norway that like, we're going to be the ones supplying the very last drop of fossil fuels to the world, uh, is seen as a proud and good thing. And I think that probably the way that will manifest, let's just say it ended up being true. It will actually be a terrible thing. Uh, it will be a, it will be a destructive and nasty thing. And, and, you know, it won't be a proud, uh, or, or economically beneficial thing, to be the last one supplying the very last drop of oil that you squeeze out of the ground from, from Norway's North Sea fields, right? Yeah. Um, so, um, but, but Australia would also be very happy if, of course, like um, the idea is that it's sort of a backup plan. Let's just say Australia's fossil fuel exports were to decline rapidly due to a reduction in demand. Global climate action accelerates. A lot of the customers for Australia's fossil fuels in Asia find something else to to. to get their energy um, clean or otherwise, um, and the demand falls, then they're like, okay, well, we've got, we've now got like a new hydrogen, we've got a new hydrogen manufacturing economy, or we've got a new, uh, like, um, you know, clean steel or clean iron um, export thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're exporting clean products that were generated from Australia's 100% clean energy or whatever, or clean electricity. Um, That these are kind of the visions of, um, backup and i think that is actually a lot more feasible and it's not going to of course the reality is that it will not australia will not export the same amount of energy that it currently does um it exports the amount of energy that it does simply because fossil fuels are a dense um pre-packaged solid you know transportable substance um and clean alternatives are not packageable or transportable in the same way there's just no getting around the physical fact of that uh, wind and sun are very different to lumps of organic matter that have just been like pressurized in the ground for a few millennia. <laughs> um, and so, uh, Australia will just end my, my feeling probably the way this pans out is Australia has, um, uh, you know, probably going to export less energy. What is an open question and what really needs action from the government is how they control that change, how they step in and intervene most of all, protect, protect the workers and the communities that have been told for decades now that they don't need to fear change and that, and they can kind of just continue as a status quo forever. Um, getting them dealing with the, the nature of that change. There was a fantastic report from the Center for Policy Development um, just out today or yesterday, I can't remember which day, uh, which details, you know, it's such a silly idea to kind of walk up to these communities and say, 
ah, look, you know, 100 coal workers in a, in a power station, you'll just kind of flick over to, to working on a wind farm. It's very patronizing um, and very paternalistic. Um, a lot more thought and effort needs to be put into a more diverse range of options to support those communities and to find them industries that will last more than just relying on the sale of a dangerous product. Um, and, and so a coal plant in Victoria shut down in 2016 called Hazelwood. It was like one of the first major coal shutdowns. Very sudden. It went, happened over the course of six months. The owner, EDF, um, they, they, they kind of just, you know, oh, sorry, no, not, not EDF. It was Angie, um, the French company. They, they just very callously and, and casually just shut it down over the course of six months. My conspiracy theory is that they, they actually kind of wanted a lot of disruption to discourage coal shutdown. Uh, they've got a few other coal assets. Mm-hmm. They wanted to discourage rapid coal shutdown anytime soon. And it kind of worked because prices went up suddenly. There wasn't enough time to get um, new uh, wind and solar replacement and battery storage um, to make sure that the price impact was minimal. Uh, there wasn't enough time to protect the communities and the workers. So they were infuriated and they, and they really just blamed like greenies and climate action. And of course, the real problem was that was that the owner just did it very suddenly and, and very cruelly, in, in, I think. Um, and so what has actually happened in Hazelwood in that community since that shut, shut down is that those folks have, have found new jobs that are not directly in clean energy industries. Um, a lot of them have gone into healthcare. A lot of them, a few of them went into education. Um, so like, you know, training workers, other, uh, others went into like science and engineering. Um, a few of them went into um, small uh, battery and EV manufacturing and a small number went into clean energy. So like solar and wind, mm-hmm. um, but it's a very diverse mix. Um, and the community is thriving. They're happy. Like it's really, it's a really good story despite having such a, such a tragic start to it. Um, but uh, the, the, that has to be replicated across that has to be replicated tens and tens of times across Australia uh, over the next few decades. Um, and it's going to be very messy. So uh, it's really, really important that uh, these people are protected and the government is refusing to think about the scenario in which they need to protect them at the moment. Mm-hmm. And part of that is coming through this something of a bit of a fantasy of, of um, just idealized green exports, just burgeoning very quickly and very easily with no real, <laughs> with no real challenges. So uh, it's, it's a, it's a troublesome situation but like with so many other things I've described with the Labor government, it wouldn't actually be that hard for them to do the right thing. I guess one of the things we, we could say is that if these like shutdowns and this just transition has to happen, it's going to happen in a lot of places, other countries as well. Um, there's going to be quite a lot of know-how and like good ways of doing it that are going to be built up, right? You're going to have this compendium of knowledge of, you know, we shouldn't probably shut down a coal plant like that. There are sort of examples that we can draw upon. Do you, you know, we can maybe say that people, we will get better at this. It won't be a new thing anymore. Yes. We'll be, we'll and, be experts and the net zero authority, which is one of the Labour governments. Yeah, yeah. The, the net zero authority yeah. Will, yeah. Will, will go a long way to helping helping with that as a body, as like a, a knowledgeable body that, um, that supports those communities. But um, yeah. uh, I worry that they won't have much to deal with because th- there will be other forces that keep those industries ticking along for much longer than they should. The decisions won't be made in the first place. To Yeah. It's, it, it's going to be really tricky to, it, it's worth watching closely to see how it pans out in the next few years. Right. 
um, because this is a really dangerous situation for Australia. It could it could easily yeah. sort of plummet off a cliff in the wrong direction. <laughs> Katan, um, we're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately, as we're running rapidly out of time. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today on the Policy Dispatch uh, for this chat about Australia. Great. Thank you for having me. What was clear from today's chat with Katan is that Australia has a massive policy decision ahead of it. Does it continue to pursue a leading role as a fossil fuel exporter? despite all the climate models clearly showing that global consumption must decline rapidly in the coming years? Or can Australia transition towards a much cleaner system? A massive shift is needed and societal factors will be crucial to its success. For more on Australia, stay tuned to Foresight as we'll be covering this fascinating country in more detail very soon. Just time for the answer to the quiz question. I asked you how much of Australia's energy output is exported to world markets? quarter, a third, a half, or three quarters? Uh, the answer is three quarters. Those coal and gas exports are worth nearly 50 billion euros to Australia's economy. Uh, again, reiterating the challenge that lies ahead. Thank you once again, as always, for tuning into The Dispatch. I'll be back again soon for another episode and another dive into the fascinating world of the energy transition. Mm-hmm.